There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? And I will go for us. Welcome back. Let me know if any of these grab you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. All of this happened, more or less. Or, abandon all hope, ye who enters here. Once upon a midnight dreary. Or, it was a pleasure to burn. About, I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. Here's a good one. We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. And lastly, this is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. Take those images and memories of some of the most famous opening lines and bring them to this. In the beginning, a spiritual being created the skies and the dry land. In other words, dear reader, lock in on this one. Or as Dory says in Finding Nemo. Oh boy, this is going to be good, I can tell. An author setting the stage for their tale is critical, and that was my goal in the previous podcast. I probably went a little long, longer than I should have, but I can't help it. I need you to feel the pangs of Eden's story before we can talk about the sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel. You need to know how we got here, where we're going. I think that horse is officially dead, so finally, let's get into it. What do we know about Cain? Not much relative to other biblical characters, but... I'll tell you one thing, we know a lot more about him than we do his brother. That is something I've learned on this journey. This story is about Cain, good or bad. Abel is a pawn, it seems, at times. Even his name is suggestive of that. Click on it in the Step Bible app, it says it's Hevel. Like in Ecclesiastes, when the teacher is comparing all the world to this, all the world to smoke, you might have read it as meaningless, meaningless. All the world is meaningless. That's a bad English word. That word is Hevel in Hebrew, and it means smoke, vapor, mist. Here one minute, gone the next, just like, just like Abel, sadly. We've quickly gone from paradise to murder in the first couple pages of Scripture, and again, that didn't happen in a vacuum. The story of Cain and Abel is short and seems to simply be a battle amongst kin. Brothers being brothers, banging heads and shoving, maybe went too far in a field. They make presentations to God. God likes one and not the other. One gets mad and takes revenge the end. If we're being honest, you could see the story on the news tonight. Domestic dispute turns violence. Neighbors shock tonight at 11. The capabilities of violence out of humans, that's nothing new under the sun. That part of the story isn't what gave me pause. It was how God reacted to the presentations. His teaching and reply to Cain seemed harsh to me, and I didn't get it. I didn't like it. And that's what made me want to go deeper. Maybe it's me as a father now that I don't like it even more than when I heard the first time, but... Let me say it this way. Let's say two of my girls come and, and bring a, a picture from each of them to me. Maybe it's a homemade birthday card for me, per the usual. They both drew a picture of a house with a nice flower bed, 
sun in the corner, you know, shining with the lines. Happy birthday, spelled out in colored pencil, maybe a sticker or two, whatever. Full creative license to wow me. Then they come on, come to me at the couch and they present. The first one is my five-year-old. She tells me what's happening in the picture. See daddy, see the grass. She shows me the house. There's a lamp in the bottom left window, just like my office. It's, it's rudimentary, but I, I can see what she's going for. There's also an attempt at a dog. She colored it yellow, just like our puppy we have now. It's good. Next up is my 12-year-old. And I must say, she's pretty artistically gifted. First thing I'm noticing, there's a lot of stick, stick figures in this bad boy. You know, Now that I look closer, I only see three stick figures, even though there's six people in our family. The house is a circle. Okay, fine. I think the paper has some peanut butter on it. You know? Okay, presentation over. They both watch my face to see how it hits me emotionally. <laughs> and then comes the question that we all know is coming, right? Hit me with it. Daddy, whose picture do you like better? And now is my American dad role to give the only answer that is acceptable in society, and that is, oh, girls, I like them both equally the same. Thank you so much. Maybe a pat on the head. They both go back to playing. Their hearts are full. I go back to reading the paper on the Lazy Boy in my slippers and PJs, take a sip of my brandy, a puff of my pipe. Or maybe that's just the Norman Rockwell picture I have in my head. But let's rewind in this sociological experiment and say I handled it differently. What if I told the truth? What if when the girls asked me which one is better, I actually answered? Something like, well, girls, if I'm being honest, I like the first one. I can see the effort. It's flat out better. The second one is brutal. Why is the house round? Where's the fence? Who is this stick figure? Is that supposed to be me? Yikes. This is not up to par. And for that reason, sharks. And for that reason, I'm out. I think we all know what would happen in that scenario. My five-year-old would cheer. <laughs> My 12-year-old might drop her chin, head to her room to cry it out. I'm assuming you as the listener right now are already shaking your head side to side at me. Now let me turn the knife. Maybe I had a bad day at work and had a weak moment and I took out my anger on one of the kids. God knows I've done that before. So I head to her room to check in. Only when I get there, I don't say they're there. I take it up a notch. I ask the child to look me in the eye and I say, hey girl, you got to pick it up. Your picture just wasn't that great. If you would have done better, everything would be fine right now. Okay, champ? All right, let's head downstairs. I would imagine that if there is an Amazon Echo in my house and the FBI was listening as they like to do, just kidding, maybe, I might have a protective child services rep at my door within the hour. Maybe not that extreme, but at least that daughter might be on a therapist's couch in about 10 years retelling this story and asking for a refill of lorazepam. Now, in a very elementary way, this example might be how you interpreted the story of Cain and Abel. Why would God reject Cain's offer to his face and then accept Abel's? And then after doing that, God seems to double down and he doesn't offer any relief for Cain. He uses that as a teaching moment and gives tough love advice. I want to unpack that because I don't think that's a fair assessment of what happened in this story or what we're supposed to get out of it. So let's go back to the text, take a look at what scripture says about the offering presented to Yahweh. Coming from Genesis 4, quote, and in the process of time, it happened that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first of his flocks and of the choicest ones. And the Lord turned to the offering of Abel. And to Cain, his offering, he did not turn. End quote. All right, even if you're not a Bible scholar, which I am not, or a deep thinker, 
I'm hoping you can see the difference in the offerings here. It's pretty clear. Remember, there's no wasted words in Scripture, especially Genesis. So you see clearly that Abel's offering were the first of his flock and the choicest ones. Abel brought the best of what he had, just like they teach you to do with the offerings later in Leviticus. Hmm. What to say about Cain? Not much, but it definitely doesn't say the same as Abel. Cain just brought some of what he had. Nowhere is there evidence suggesting that Abel's offering was of more intricate value or superior to Cain's. What it is saying is that Abel brought the best of what he had. Cain's value in total might have been way more expensive or rare. That's not the point. I think the first tutorial here is the comparison trap that we all fall into. The first big lesson here is this. Each brother should not be compared with the other, but to themselves. What each brought is compared to what they could have brought. It's the potential that God is concerned with. So let's bring it back to the birthday cards for my girls. It's not that the youngest daughter had a better picture. It probably looked worse. But it was seen as the best they could do. She gave it her all, and it was obvious. Also, that my 12-year-old simply mailed it in. She didn't try. She went quick, and you could tell. Aesthetically, hers probably looked better, but that would be unfair. She could have done better, and that's the lesson. Sometimes with Cain and Abel, you get it backwards. I mean, some people, they, they flip it. Uh, bringing the offering to God was Cain's idea. Does it ever even say that God wanted an offering or needed a gift? Of course not. He's God. Cain created the thought of bringing a gift to God. And if you keep reading in Scripture, you'll see that this idea is to the test of time. People bring things to God all the time now. Cain thought of that. So that's kind of brilliant. And the fact, you know, when you think about it, I mean, the idea of the wheel is pretty simple, but it sure made an impact on the world. Similar here, I think. So let's dig in a bit on the gift. The picture I want to paint is that of perspective. That will be a big theme on this episode. And this gift reminds me of giving my wife or my mom a token of my appreciation. Does anyone remember that trend of a, a push present? You know, maybe it's still a thing. But when my wife was pregnant with our first, I heard a few of my friends said, you got to get her a push present. I said, what's a push present? They said, you know, when she delivers the child, it would be nice thought to, you know, get her a present to say thank you, like a necklace or a pair of earrings. I thought that seemed like a really nice thing to do. So I did it. My... You know, my wife carried a baby for nine months, 10 months actually, but they don't tell you that, do they? She threw up a lot. She couldn't sleep. Her back was killing her. And then the final culmination was when she was in excruciating pain. A giant needle was stuck in her spine to alleviate the pain, pushed for several hours until finally a human being emerges from her and out of the womb and into the world. So then she then proceeded to have this gorgeous baby latch onto her and produce endless free food for her immediately. And then after the dust settled and she got her first rest, I came in, hero, presented her with the smallest pair of teeny tiny diamond earrings that I could afford. And I got to say, in my opinion, it's an even trade, right? Uh, I, I doubt you agree with that. So that's not the point, is it? There is no way I could ever repay her for what she just did. She just brought life into the world and I get her some shiny rocks for her ears. Sounds worse now than where it's coming from. So big thought here. The, the point of a gift is not reciprocity. The idea of gratitude is not to get even. It is not an insurance policy. It's not a commodity trade. And she knew that. 
It's a heart issue like most lessons in Scripture. We have all received a gift that was not something we even needed or thought or wanted, but you see the effort of the gift giver. You know what they did or you know what they did, what they went through to get it for you? It might even be enough for you to know that someone was driving around thinking about you and they had to change their day to get you something. That's what's happening here. What if I got my wife a vacuum cleaner and told her this was the gift I was giving her for labor? By the way, we probably needed a nice vacuum cleaner and those bad boys ain't cheap. But we all know how that would have gone. Again, it's not about solving a problem or making the most reasonable or responsible choice. That idea actually cheapens the whole process. Does God need anything? Is he missing something? You know how God is known as the Almighty? That's because he is. So when we do or build or offer something and present it to God, it's pretty useless in the cosmic scheme of things. So the reason for gifts to the Lord is not heaven insurance. It's not to fill a hole. It's gratitude. And gratitude has very little to do with the recipient's needs. It's not the price tag. It's the notion that you gave your best. I, as a dad, don't need handwritten birthday cards. They're technically useless, but I love the thought. I love seeing the effort, and so does God. Solomon had this thought when he built the temple for Yahweh. When he was done with this solid, gold, gorgeous building filled with the most precious details from expert craftsmen, he's almost like a posture of embarrassment when he's showing it to God. It's like, hey, God, I, I know you don't need this, and who am I to even have attempted this? But this is the best of the best, and I want you to have it. So... Cain's mistake is something we have all done before, I would imagine, and that's what God calls him on. When you give something that is average or below average like Cain did, it was easy to see. This is opening socks on Christmas Day. Did Cain give a beautiful waterfall of a gift that was bursting with creativity and love, or did he throw a poker chip in the middle of the table? Have you ever gotten someone something in the hopes that you will get something back? Ouch. Most of the time, what happens? Not what you thought would happen. <laughs> it's almost has the opposite effect. It can distance you, distance you from that person. It doesn't even bring you closer. That's what God is saying here. Cain, listen. Is this what you think of me? Come on, man. Is this what you want our relationship to be? You're better than that. Why don't you just try again? Now, here is where the story really takes off, huh? How how'd Cain receive that correction? Yeah, not so good as it turns out. <laughs> Let's look at the text and take a, a look at this elusive piece of advice for Cain. Quoting verse 6, now with God addressing Cain, quote, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Is it not the case that if you do well, then lift up? And if you don't do well, then sin lies crouching at the door. Its desire is unto you, yet you can rule over it. End quote. So why do you think God replies with that? More to the point, why do you think God thought this was the best time for this suggestion on how to live? How do you hear this instruction on first pass? Some people put this in the flawed, ridiculous view that Christians can sometimes have, especially when they think they're referencing like the God of the Old Testament. You know, if you are good, God rewards you. If you are bad, God punishes you. So be good. All right, let's hit the field. Man, that drives me crazy. Now, to be fair, this is a fork. It is two roads diverging in the yellow wood for my Robert Frost fans, but it's not that simple of a telling Cain to be a good boy. Does God offer a reward for good behavior? No, it's totally different, man. God says, if you do well, then lift up. 
what the heck does that mean? And then he goes on to say that if you don't do well, where does that lead? It doesn't say anything about a punishment. It says that sin is crouching at the door. It's like a person or something. It wants him. It's pretty clear that Cain's pretty, pretty miffed here. He's angry. God sees that. He sees that he's down in the mouth, and God does not play into that. He doesn't entertain that position. It's not tough love, in my opinion. It's a different viewpoint that he's trying to convey to Cain. Cain is crestfallen. He's hot. He's fuming. But he shouldn't be. His perspective needs to change. He needs to get this woe is me stuff out of his system. I think from his side of the table, he's completely misinterpreted what had just gone on with this offering. And if he keeps this up, it is going to destroy his future and the future of those around him. Have you ever been around someone who has gone down this path and they're just stuck in it? I, I call them Eeyores. Remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Rain cloud over him. No matter what is presented to him, he finds the negative. End of the road. Nothing to do. And no hope of things getting better. These people are exhausting. They suck the life right out of you just by being around them. Not even a David Goggins speech can get them out of their little pity party. Someone has always just done something to them. They never see the common denominator in all their problems, which happens to be them. And that is exactly what is going on here. Listen to this. In his eyes, Cain has located the source of his problem, and it's not him. It's outside of him. And as long as he keeps that outlook on life, he can always play the victim. But that's not the reality of the situation here. At the baseline, at its core, the problem lays entirely in the choices Cain has been making, in the relationships he's building. He's totally in control of it if he wants it. This is always the first step people take to, to get out of anger or depression. Ownership. Cain has the cure for his crestfallen face. He has a choice. The ball is in his court if he wants to pick it up and turn this around. And vice versa if he doesn't. But it's not his parents' fault. It's not Abel's fault. And it's not God's fault. The author of the book, Rabbi Foreman, phrases it like this. Hey, Cain, why is your face fallen? If you are active, if you seek out good, you can lift up your face. But if you are neutral, if you do not act, you can't tread water, man. Being neutral is not an evil act in of itself. It can still leave you wide open to sin. And buddy, sin is crouching at the door. Even the most well-intentioned plans to stay neutral can lead to a disaster. You can't play Switzerland here. Now lift up. You know, I'll say, personally, I recently had a pretty big struggle, struggle myself in the past couple of years after dealing with a family death. I wasn't handling it well. I kept asking God to take this negative behavior out of my life. Just get rid of it for me, God. I can't get a grip on it. Please just take this away. And you know what God did? Nothing. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say nothing. But, but he didn't just take the poison away from me or hide me in a hole. He let me figure it out. Self-soothe. And it felt like he was saying the same thing to me that he was saying to Cain. Tyler, you have all the tools and people in your life to get a handle on this. I created you. I know. Now lift up. I have a close friend that got into some credit card debt as a young man, like, you know, early 20s. Happens to the best of us. It got to the point where he had something like, I forget, like 40K credit card debt. He couldn't sleep. He'd wake up in cold sweats. The stress of this enormous weight on his chest was crushing him. 
So he went to his dad, who'd done pretty well financially, asking him for some relief. He went, you know, hat in hand to his dad, asking for help out of this pickle. And his dad said, you know, I could write a check and make this go away. I could do that. But then you wouldn't learn anything, would you? I'll give you a little something to get the collection people off your back. But after that, you are going to dig yourself out of this pit. In other words, now lift up. And my buddy, little by little, got out of debt and has never been in it again. Maybe one of the best examples of this comes from Paul. Imagine that in one of his letters to the Corinthians. He's talking to them, encouraging them to hold the line, keep the faith. And he goes into a story from his life, just like I just did. He's talking about this horrible pain that he's been living with, a literal, like a thorn in his side. Now, there are many different interpretations of what exactly this was. That's not the point. Paul says that to keep him from getting conceited, to keep him from getting a big head, how awesome he's doing, God gave him a, a gift. <laughs> and that gift was a searing pain in his side. Paul says it was from the devil. That's how bad it was. He asked God three separate times to take this away, meaning he prayed hard, man, on three different occasions for God to please get rid of this pain, just like I did. And I'm sure you have done the same to God at some point in your life. And does God take it away? Nope, he does not. He comes back to Paul with an answer that Paul probably didn't want to hear, but he needed it. And I bet you've heard this one before. God says, I'm not going to take away the pain, Paul. He says, quote, here's why. Because my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Whew. Come on, man. In other words, Paul, my loving kindness and my mercy are more than enough, always available, no matter what your situation is. And it is completed and shows itself the most effective in frailty. Now lift up. But Cain doesn't want to lift up. He wants blood. And blood he gets in the very next line of scripture, quoted, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. This is me breaking in here. This is one of those, hey, can I, can I talk to you over here for a minute? You know about what God just said? All right, so then they're alone. They're working the field. Cain attacked Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? End quote. Okay, so this is key. Remember, there are two types of where is questions in Hebrew. We, I think I covered this before, but one is ifo and the other is aye. They are different. Ifo is more simplistic like, uh, hey, honey, where are my sunglasses? That's the where. That's the ifo. The other is aye. This is the word used here by God talking to Cain. He asked the same one of Adam when he hid. It's more of a, you know, what the heck are you doing? Where's your head at? Who has your ear? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the snake? Are you listen to me. Cain, what have you done with your brother? Later in Genesis is another brutal story. Isaac will ask this of his father when they are walking up the mountain for him to be slaughtered by his father. Isaac says, where is the lamb, dad? You know, for the sacrifice? That's an aye question. It's a hard question. Back to the book. Quote, the voice of your brother's innocent blood is crying out to me from the ground for justice. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's shed blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its strength. It will resist producing good crops for you. You will be a fugitive and a vagabond roaming aimlessly on the earth. 
in perpetual exile without a home, a degraded outcast. Cain replies, this is too much. This is more than I can handle. Behold, you have driven me out. Remember that word, garage? There it is again. You have driven me out this day from the face of the land and from your face, your presence. I will be hidden and I will be a fugitive and an aimless drifter on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me, end quote. I riffed a little bit there like I do. But by the way, who would be out there to kill Cain? What other humans are out there? I might cover that somewhere else, but that might need to be uh, behind a paywall or something. <laughs> but uh, moving on, here's why I went so hard on the Adam and Eve story. Do you see the similarities? Both Adam and Cain hear that divine question of Aye. Both Adam and Cain express fear in being hidden from God. Both Adam and Cain are condemned to experience difficulty farming, working and keeping, and both Adam and Cain suffer exile. Exile where? To the east. Even further east now and further farming punishment. Do you see that? It's the same punishment except it is now amplified and intensified. Sin begets more sin. Negative snowballs into more negative and we get even further away from our home. It's compounding. The failures in Eden set the stage for Cain. His curse of the land is heightened. No matter what you do, Cain, the earth will not produce for you. Here's the worst one to me. You will never, ever feel comfortable on this planet. You will be a wandering drifter. You will always feel out of place. You know that feeling when you walk in your house and your head hits the couch or the bed after you've been gone too long? Yeah, Cain, you'll never feel that again. The ending of the story tells us that Cain settled in the land of Nod and builds a city which he names after his son. So at first you might think, oh, good. Looks like Cain's getting some relief here and made a home for himself and a family. But the land of Nod is not really a place. That Hebrew term means the land of wandering. And there is a Jewish teacher named Nashmanides who notifies, he notices an important detail in that text. The Torah speaks of Cain's urban construction project, aka building the city in the past continuous tense. So grammar nerds, the text doesn't say that he built a city and named it after his son, but rather he was building a city and dedicated it to his son. So what that means is that Cain never finished the project. He is always perpetually building. He gets it going, and through stopping and starting, he never, he's never able to see it through. Always dreaming the dream, but he can't catch it. That's the curse. He has no roots. And the last detail I will harp on is the blood. The dom in Hebrew, that is crying out to Yahweh, wanting justice. This is more wordplay from the biblical authors that we have no chance of seeing in translation. Three words here that build and play. The first is easy. It's Adam. You know, Adam. Adam in English and English words, but they pronounce it Adam, but who cares? That means human or man or mankind, depending on the setting. The next one is Dom. That is blood in Hebrew. And the last one is Adama. And that one is the ground or the earth. Stay with me. This is cool. So I got this from Bible Project. It was this lesson in the last chapter of the book of Numbers, and it was in reference to the cities of refuge that, that the Israelites had after the wilderness. It was a safe haven for people who were accused of murder or, or of a killing that they had to go and let cooler heads prevail until we sorted this out and the dust settles. So we have God, the creator, who makes Adam, man, out of the Adamah, the ground, and inside of that human is a liquid filled with life that is the dam, the blood. So blood means life in the Hebrew text. Just look for it. Like in the example in the tabernacle, 
the tent in the desert where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, to purify that room, they would sprinkle innocent blood all over it to purify it. So in other words, the image is that we have this blameless life can pass through the door, the curtains, into the tent, the Holy of Holies, and cry out to God for mercy, and God will hear that cry. Get it? All right, so big point here, and we're done. When a human decides to take the life of another human and spill their blood on the ground, that is an act of decreation. When an Adam kills another Adam and spills the dam of the Adamah, that's a big deal. See how clear that wordplay was right there? I love it. All right. So that act is a human playing God with the life of another. God will not stand for that. And the blood cries out. And when the creator God hears that plea, he responds. It might not be in the time frame that you think is correct on your clock, but justice will be served. That's the logic of that blood verse. This is a sign of chaos in the land. Have you ever seen spilled blood? It, you know, it's jarring. That's because on the base level, you know, this is not where this is supposed to be. This is terrible. What has happened? People are passing out. That is an offense to the creator of life. So in his love, he will not stand for this. You know, as the story goes on, he knows people are going to kill each other. And a lot of time it's on accident. Heck, even Cain might have not known he was going to end his brother's life. This is the first knockout ever. He might have just beaten him up so bad and then realized, uh-oh, you know, a little kick on the wrist. Hey, man, I, I don't know. I'm, that's, that's just me. But what I do know is that God doesn't want to let these deaths turn into more deaths, into a bloodbath. Revenge never works, right, Samson fans? God always provides a way out, an Eden, a refuge, whether it's an ark to save humanity from the chaos waters or the tent in the camp in the wilderness that keeps the snakes and thorns and scorpions at bay, like a mobile Eden where the Ark of the Covenant is the new tree of life, or is the blood-soaked doorway of a house in Egypt as the angel of death passes over the house, saving the firstborn or the city of refuge that have been set up to give justice a chance. There's always a remnant, and there is always a refuge, a glimmer of hope. So left to our own devices, we as humans are becoming more and more like the snake, thinking like an animal. My brother inconvenienced me, so I will end my brother. What? That's something a jackal or a shark might think. This is a puppy dog eating his food as fast as possible, not knowing if there will ever be another meal again. A scarcity mindset. I don't know if there's enough in the tank for both my brother and I, so I will eliminate one of those options so I get the attention and the blessing. Come on. So God might say here, Hey, Cain, Adam, Tyler, the test was wondering if I have enough love for all of you. If someone else is getting exalted, will you be left out? Does that sound like my nature as God? I mean, I've heard this from moms or dads. They have this thought when the second child is on the way, they can't even fathom the ability to love another something as much as they have loved this first baby. And then yet suddenly there's a new love bucket and it's already filled up. Why did you doubt that? It's the same doubt in the garden with the serpent. Do you see that? Are you going to wait for God or are you going to take can you trust the story? Can you have faith in God's method and timing for your blessing? Or do you think you have a better idea for how things should operate and play out? As ridiculous as that sounds, that is our thought. But be careful. 
Why? Because Cain, there is sin, aka moral hazard at the door, crouching, waiting, tracking you like an animal. It's hunting you. If you fall prey and you let it derail you from God's plan, there are consequences. Just like the first animal that was plotting on the first human, they listened to the adversary. They let an animal rule over them when the game plan was the opposite, and yet you have a choice to master this inner turmoil. This wrestling match that happens daily in your head, you can subdue it. The stakes are high, but you have good cards showing. You just have to let the play develop. Let the game come to you, and you will be in control of yourself and this creation with me, God, over the flyers and the swimmers and the creeping crawlers and the land creatures forever and ever paradise. I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out.